From downtown San Francisco, you're listening to LexLab, a production of UC Hastings Center on Legal Technology and Innovation. LexLab. I'm Drew Amerson, the director of LexLab. And in this week's episode, we're joined in our Lunch and Learn session for a How I Built This conversation with Logical CEO and co-founder, Andy Wilson. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming to our LexLab Lunch and Learn event today. I know it's a little warm, it's a little stuffy up here. At least it's not quite as bad as yesterday, but you know, maybe this will be like, instead of hot yoga, we'll have a hot Lunch and Learn today, burn some calories, and, and we'll get through this together. Um, so today we have a really special guest. I have Andy Wilson. He's the CEO of a company called Logical. I'm not going to spill too many beans about it because I want him to tell the story. But Logical is a fantastic legal tech company. They concentrate in e-discovery. And if you came to some of our events last year, you might have seen us put on an event about the Freedom of Information Act. And specifically, we had an event on Scott Pruitt's downfall. Now, Scott Pruitt was the former head of the EPA, and he got caught up in a little bit of a scandal involving some emails that he sent. And it was actually Logical's software that both the Sierra Club and reporters at the Washington Post and New York Times used to go through these document productions through FOIA requests. So maybe we'll get into a little bit of that today. Um, just want to give you the format. Andy and I are going to have a fireside chat for about half an hour. Then we'll open it up to questions from the audience for the last 15 minutes. Um, by the way, I'm Drew Amerson. I think I know most of you. I'm the director of LexLab. So let's dive in. Thank you. Happy to be here. Fantastic. Thank you so, for coming, especially today. It's so hot. Right, and it's gorgeous outside. So, um, Andy, why don't you start and just tell us what Logical is and, and what you do? Yes. Uh, okay, so Logical is a, uh, a cloud-based platform for what we call modern legal teams um, that need to do disputes, investigations, records requests, like the uh, uh, FOIA project um, that Drew was just talking about. In, um, in an expedited and uh, a more affordable, so that's logical. Cool, and, and can you tell us who are your customers? Who are you selling this to? Uh, everybody, so the mission of the company is to, you know, make this, it, it, how much of you guys know much about e-discovery? Like show of hands, like you're pretty well informed. Well, hopefully none of you have to go through that, um, or what it, what it used to be. It, it was, uh, uh, pretty logical. It was a pretty uh, terrible process. Like, imagine everything that could go wrong uh, with trying to read somebody else's email, which is really what discovery is these days, or Slack messages. Uh, you know, ex very expensive, very slow. A um, uh, lot of shady things happening in, in, in uh, vendor-based marketplaces. And so, you know, we decided that this needed to be turned upside down. You know, like make things that are slow, make it fast. Uh, expensive, make it make it affordable. But along the way, we realized that, you know, these days, not many cases go to trial, right? Like, you, you settle, um, and one of the things that we started to see a trend in, this is back in, like, 2008 or so, is the data volumes were getting so outrageously large and expensive that people would just proactively settle because the cost of discovery was too expensive. And as a, um, a computer, you know, scientist, business person, I always thought that was ridiculous, uh, that you shouldn't block somebody from getting access to justice just because there's a large hard drive in the way. 
and we set out to, uh, to fix that. And so because our mission is to democratize discovery, to answer your question, we have customers all over the world, all shapes and sizes, uh, from solo practitioners, uh, individuals represent, representing themselves in pro se, to Walmart, you know, the world's largest company, um, and a lot of people in between, cities, states, and local government you mentioned, uh, Sierra Club, Earth Justice, ACLU on the nonprofit side, uh, hundreds and hundreds of law firms, uh, you name it. So it's available to anybody. And you guys too. You could go online right now and sign up for your own account. It's free. So you said your mission was to democratize discovery. Yes. Can you, can you unpack that a little bit? Why is that important? Uh, well, the data challenge is the biggest one. You know, like, I think we can all agree that we're getting more of everything, more Slack messages, uh, emails, texts, etc. You know, it's just this uh, explosion of information and it's not slowing down. Discovery is is where you're finding the, the truth of these matters today, right? You're, you're seeing the smoking guns in the emails. I mean, just look what just happened with the Trump administration, you know, and these uh, uh, text messages. Um, audio and video are creating these automatic transcripts, and there's juicy pieces of information in there. The problem is you have this noise-to-signal ratio, right, where the amount of information is growing at an exponential rate, uh, so you can call that the noise, and the signal, you know, what you're commonly looking for, you know, the patterns of communication or the smoking gun, is getting buried underneath that, that data flow. And um, discovery, uh, e-discovery specifically, is, is the art of going through that, right? But the, what, what we started to see happen in the marketplace is the cost of doing that was just astronomical. I mean, to, and even today, in this, in this market today, right? You guys know Amazon Web Services and S3 storage. I'm sure you've all heard about that stuff. You can get a terabyte of data uh, stored in Amazon for $20 a month. In e-discovery, be, be, be prepared to pay $25,000 a month or $40,000 a month for the life of litigation because the way that the market has worked is they, the, the market charges you on the entire set of data volume, right? So all that noise. So it's only getting more and more expensive. So it's actually blocking people from uh, pursuing their, their, uh, uh, their matter in court because the cost of this thing is astronomical. So when we say we have to democratize this, we see this as, um, you know, if, if, some, if we don't do this, uh, people aren't going to get uh, access to justice, number one. Uh, you're not going to find these, you know, smoking gun emails like with Scott Pruitt, number two. There's all sorts of reasons. You know, if you think about it, data is just this kind of new darkness and uh, logical is like a big flashlight to it. So I find that really, really interesting, and I, I guess I do because I, I used to litigate at a big firm. So they had yeah. the resources they could document throw, review. They could throw dozens of us first-year attorneys and yeah. do all this document review, going yeah. through banker boxes of hard copies, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's great. I'm curious how you got into this. It sounds like you don't have a JD. No, yeah. how, do how did you find your way into discovery? Uh, not by uh, this. You don't wake out of bed one day and you're like, I'm going to start a legal <laughs> tech company. Um, I've always wanted to start a company. I just didn't know exactly what I, what I wanted to do. I didn't know anything about legal. Um, well, I had the, uh, the, the uh, you know, luck, I guess, of graduating in 2001, um, and it was basically nuclear winter for tech jobs, um, and I was going to do uh, uh, programming for Arthur Anderson. You guys remember that company? They represented Enron. They were helping them burn those documents on top of the building. I'm glad I didn't take that job because they rescinded it um, for good reasons. Um, so, so anyway, I needed to find a, uh, something to do. And a friend of mine that I worked with um, at uh, Virginia Tech asked me to come to his brother's business and 
and help out, right? And uh, I said, okay. And he said, well, I'll just warn you, it's a printing business. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> why would you need my skills? I don't deal with paper. Um, but he said, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff here on the tech side, I promise you. So I went over there, and sure enough, it was a printing business. And, you know, you mentioned these banker boxes, right? And this company was printing enormous amounts of, of uh, digital content to paper. It was called Blowbacks at the time at 25 cents a page, you know, producing millions and millions of pages of content, um, a lot of irrelevant information, and then dropping it off to law firms and government agencies around Washington, D.C., which is where we started this company. Um, and so after seeing that, I'm like, wait a minute. You're printing out people's emails so that lawyers can read them at $350 an hour? That's insane. Like, that's how they could charge 25 cents a page. He's like, well, it's only 25 cents a page, but you're making $5 a document reading it. Like, oh, well, I guess that's a good deal. <laughs> um, so, you know, coming from a, um, a computer science background, I'm like, this is ridiculous. This should not be this way. And I think that's true of a lot of what you find out when you start looking inside the legal ecosystem. It is not known for any kind of technological mastery or efficiency. And so, you know, if, if you have any ounce of that in you and you want to fix something, there's an enormous amount of opportunity there. It's just, you know, which one do you want to focus on? And discovery, to me, was pretty interesting from a computer science background because you're dealing with all this enormous amounts of data, and you know data is going to get bigger, so that's an interesting problem to solve. Um, and then, of course, you know, the social impact of it is pretty cool. Yeah, so when you first started the company, what was the value proposition? How did, how did you get customers? Uh, so there, the, it's, a it's a long story. I'll try and keep it short, but... We did not start logical as logical. Um, we added the coal later. The first version of the company was called Logic or Logic Systems. If you go to lksi.com, that'll redirect you to logical.com. Still own logic.com. If anybody wants to buy a four-letter domain, let me know. Uh, eventually, we will sell that to you know some multinational company for millions of dollars because <laughs> it's irrelevant <laughs> these days. Uh, but the the company was uh, designed to help. Um, uh, not print paper, basically. So people would ship us hard drives of data, and then we would process the data and then ship it back to them, if you can believe that. And we did that in my condo in, in D.C. And imagine the scenario. like It was actually way hotter than it is here today because we had a server rack in my dining room, if you've ever seen one of those, a uh, 42U server rack with you know uh, electrical plugged in all over the condo to avoid uh, short-circuiting everything. <laughs> and we had to keep the, the AC down at 50 degrees just so it would stay at 75. Um, so you got to start somewhere. The cloud did not exist. <laughs> so you had to kind of build your own. And we did. We would buy our own servers, and we, we'd build them from scratch. And eventually, we moved out of the condo. Um, and eventually, we moved the data center out into... Ashburn, Virginia, which is where a lot of you know, tools you guys use today, Amazon's out there, Facebook's out there, Yahoo's out there, there's a bunch of companies. And uh, we had a fiber line that was plugged into our office in D.C. Anyway, telling you all this because um, that was early, you know, pre-cloud stuff, and the only way to really do it, uh, when the recession hit us in 2008, 2009, um, we realized there was a much better way of doing this. Like, we, th this, people sending us hard drives although at the time made sense, we knew in the future that would seem ridiculous um, and that people would be able to do this themselves. And so, you know, the cloud was just coming of age then and we said, all right, let's just do that. So we um, uh, set on this path to kill this old business model and uh, disrupt ourselves with uh, this new business model, which became Logic Coal. And we added the coal to the name because that was the job we saw the product to be done. 
right? Like that's what people will hire the product for is to help them cull through this information um, faster and cheaper. So you keep talking about we. What, what did your team look like at this point? Uh, it, during 2000... So pre, pre-recession, I guess, when you're still having people send you the hard drives, you have the yeah. server set up in your condo. We were actually a pretty small operation. We were a um, very profitable company. Uh, we were less than 20 employees at the time. And we were ranked on the Inc. 500 as the fastest growing legal technology company in the country at number 181. Um, if you know what EBITDA is, our, we were making, I think our EBITDA margin was like 75% or something like that. It was nuts. Because um, we had optimized, we built this software to process all this data, and it was really cheap for us to do it, but expensive for you know, customers to do that. And we were working on some of the largest cases uh, in the world at the time. You know, big uh, mergers and acquisition, Molson, Coors, when those two companies merged, there was a big second request that happened. When there's a second request, there's often a, a large amount of information that needs to be sifted through, and we were the company that processed all that data. So it sounds like things were going pretty well. I'm oh, trying we, to figure out why, great. why disrupt your own success. Yeah, we had millions and millions of dollars in profit um, just sitting in the bank. You know, I'm not one to go buy yachts and Ferraris and stuff, so we were wondering what we could do with it, and yeah. the recession gave us the idea of what we could do huh. with it. How so? Uh, well, you know, that business, when you're processing all this data for these large-scale projects and you have big banks and, um, and, and law firms, um, the recession impacted everybody. I mean, some you know, bankruptcy lawyers probably had a great time, uh, but you know, intellectual property lawyers, maybe not so much. Like, I remember there was a case that we were working on with Finnegan and Henderson, and it was on the color of orange. Uh, it was PNC Bank versus ING, I think. <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. And they were spending millions of dollars a month on this thing. Uh, and as soon as the recession happened, that, that case stopped. Um, so, you know, our, our business was, we were relying on these large cases. You know, we were making all this money on processing all this data. A terabyte of data would have cost uh, $2.5 million uh, to process back in, back in the day. So, yeah, so that's... that's so that. you saw the writing on the wall. Yeah, the that, business was like yeah. this, and then it went like this, and, we're like, sure. and then we're like, okay, maybe we should go like this, and then go back that. That's so what happened. You, you've had some ups and downs, and I'm, maybe yeah. this is a good segue to talk about the legal tech landscape generally, because uh-huh. you've been doing this for a long time. How, how have uh-huh. you seen things change in the legal tech area? Yeah, I've been doing this for 15 years. Um, it's changed a ton. I mean, legal tech is hot right now. Like, you're seeing it in the investment community. A company called Ironclad down on the peninsula just raised their $50 million Series C, I believe. A good friend of mine, Jack Newton from Clio. Uh, he's the CEO there. They just announced the largest ever legal tech funding round, uh, $250 million. That's absurd. <laughs> you know, if, I, if somebody were to tell me that were going to happen in 2008, I'm like, No. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, but I think people are starting to realize legal is such an important part of the economy, but it hasn't really gone into the cloud yet, right? It hasn't really felt the impact of, of the cloud and automation you know, for various reasons. A lot of perverse incentives exist uh, to kind of slow it down. But um, I think that's starting to change, and you're seeing it in the investment community, which is, which is great. You know, we're in, a, we're in a great bull run right now where there's, there's lots of money floating around. Uh, but I think people are starting to realize that there's better ways of doing thing, doing things, and there's technology out there that can you know help them go you know better, faster, cheaper. Yeah. So 
I'm also curious about this because I talked about my first year as an attorney and I was doing a job that probably doesn't exist now because companies like yours have come along. Yep, um, that's correct. Do you have any advice for law students who are starting down this path and what their career is going to look like and, and what they should be thinking about? Hmm. I think one of the biggest problems in the legal industry is the billable hour. The billable hour is a perverse incentive to most technology. Whether you're aware of it or not, if you're charging by the hour, your brain is telling you, go slow. Because it's saying, if you go slow, you get more money, and you get more money, you can buy more things. You get more things, you can be happier. Probably not. But, you know, that's typically the way the mind works. Um, and so my, my advice is, uh, try and find or either start your own company that, that uh, reduces that pain, right? Um, because the, you know, there's some cases where a billable hour makes sense, right, where you want something to go slow. But I would say 9.9 .9 times out of 10, uh, you don't want that. You want, you want fast you know, resolution to things. Um, so I would not advise you know, going to work at a large law firm making you know, under that 2,000-hour requirement, which is insane, you know, six-minute increments. Like, it's a miserable life. I've never done it, but I have many employees that used to do that, and they are very happy that they're not doing that anymore. I'll second that. Yeah, exactly. It's just not a good, not a great place to you know leverage this you know, awesome education that you're getting here at UC Hastings to go. A lot of them read just read other people's emails. Like that's what document review is. Um, and if that's what you have to do to make ends meet, then you have to do that. But there is an enormous opportunity, knowing what you know about the legal system, uh, to be more entrepreneurial about it, or join an, a legal tech company to help them with with their mission. Um, there's new law firms being formed that are anti-billable hour, like Justin Kahn's company at, at Atrium. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the model of the future law firm. Um, yeah, so on, on the issue of the billable hour, some of your clients are law firms. How do you a go, lot of our clients how, are how law do you, firms. How do you go and sell to a law firm and you're basically like, hey, I'm going to take away a profit center. What's your pitch to them? That's a great question. It took us a while to figure this out. Now, these days, I wouldn't say we necessarily sell to law firms because our, our business is almost 100% inbound meaning like people find us on Google and then they just sign up and put a credit card in and they, they're off to the races. Now, of course, we write a lot of content to encourage that, um, that type of funnel. Um, but in the early days, we would get laughed out of rooms uh, all the time. I remember the first time I pitched this partner at uh, Covington and Burling in Washington, D.C. They do a lot of work for like NFL and you, you probably heard Covington and Burling. A lot of lobbyists in D.C. Anyway, I pitched him on the idea of logical. And I was like, you know, you realize you could do, like, you wouldn't need all these associates. You could just, you could do this 10 times faster. And he giggled at me. And I was like, I was so naive at the time. He's like, you realize you're telling me that you can reduce our profits by over 90%. And I'm like, yeah, but that's good <laughs> for your clients. <laughs> and he's like, that's not good for the business. And, and if we don't have that money, we can't have any clients. I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, what's the end around? What okay, so here's what we found out. Uh, one, the large law firms are kind of the, the ultimate holdout to automation and technology, right? They, we don't sell to them. They don't often really like to hear from us. <laughs> and they definitely don't like to hear from us when their clients are mandating that they use us, like Walmart is an example. The big value prop in the enterprise taking back discovery is, you know, why are law firms the custodian of this information? It doesn't make any sense, you know, like, that should be in their control because it's their data. So what ends up happening is they invite in all these law firms from all around the world to do work inside of our product. So the data doesn't leave anywhere, right? So it's, it's very valuable there. So they get forced that way. The bigger thing that we realized is 
in the SMB uh, market and mid-market for law firms, I mean, it's 50,000 law firms out there. Only 250 of them are the AM Law 250, right? Everybody else is, you know, less than uh, 50 attorneys. The majority of them are less than 10 attorneys, you know, hanging a shingle out there. They have clients, but they often don't have tools to do discovery, and so they rely on e-discovery vendors. Well, when you rely on e-discovery vendors, you're basically outsourcing a significant chunk of time that could be captured internally. So to answer your question, when these law firms sign up for Logical, it's actually increasing their billable hours in two ways. One, all that work that the e-discovery vendor was doing is now being done by them and it's automated. And that can be substantial, like dozens of hours every single matter, every single month captured internally because now they're the ones loading the data, running the search terms, adding users, making productions. So that's big. And then number two, because they're able to provide a better experience and price and all that to their clients, um, they often start competing in a better way uh, in the marketplace where they get more, uh, more demand from their clients because they're way faster, way cheaper than the alternatives. Interesting. So uh, it sounds, again, that comes back to democratizing discovery in that people, law yep. firms, big or small, can upload their own stuff. They can parse it. They can run their own searches. So I'm curious, uh, you know, you said you had 20 people back in 2008. How big yep. is Logical now? We're still pretty lean. We're about 100 employees. Yeah. Uh, we don't hire fast. Um, we hire rather slowly. And, and that's intentional, you know, because if you hire too fast, your, your culture could get um, warped in, in ways that, that you don't want. Also, like, there's so much technology out there that even SaaS companies can use to get 10 to 1, right, where you don't need to hire all these salespeople if you can automate some of the you know, top of the funnel kind of thing. Uh, there's a third way that the law firms are signing up that I mentioned earlier is the data volumes are so large now, but the one thing that really hasn't changed for them and maybe has gotten worse is the deadline is still the same. So you're still under this really strict deadline. We see this every day. You know, people come in like, I've got a production I've got to make on Monday. And that's, you know, they send that through chat. Like, how do I do that? Um, and they can just do it. So there is some forcing of the hand that's happening through this digital revolution that we're in right now. You've been listening to LexLab, recorded live during our bi-weekly lunch and learn sessions at the LexLab Legal Tech Innovation Center. LexLab is UC Hastings' hub for legal technology in San Francisco, featuring a resident startup accelerator, regular panel discussions, and legal resources for entrepreneurs. To learn more about LexLab or to attend a lunch and learn session in person, visit us online at lexlab.uchastings.edu. You mentioned that if you grow too fast, your culture can get warped. And I've, I've heard yeah. you talk about the importance of culture in your company before. And mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to go into that a little bit. And I guess the first question is, how would you describe the culture of Logical? Uh, the culture of Logical is actually embodied in my co-founder's name. So... You know, culture is really, yeah, people talk a lot about that in Silicon Valley, but it's really just the behaviors that you allow to exist. So, you know, think about Uber's culture. They might have awesome core values of, I don't know, I don't know what they are. Maybe they're like, do the right thing or do the wrong thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, pursue no profits. I don't, I don't know, stuff like that. But they might have these really great core values on a wall somewhere, but the behaviors that exist inside your, in your organization end up becoming your culture. Um, and that's really what's, what's more important, right? Values and behaviors are tied together to create your culture. And values are important. Uh, they should be actionable. They should be easy. I always recommend five or fewer because we can't remember more than five. Um, but the behaviors are, are really what set up your culture. And so we, uh, my, my co-founder is, is totally the embodiment of those behaviors. His name is Shin. 
and it's spelled S-H-E-N-G, and we made it into an acronym. So it's uh, smart, not arrogant, hardworking and humble, entrepreneurial, not risk-averse, nice and not disingenuous, and then grit and lots of it. And he's from Tennessee, so he had grits and lots of them. <laughs> um, so that, that's, you know, it's just that, right? So it's like, you know, what, what values do you want to represent, and then what behaviors do you want to uh, enforce? So I, I like that, and I like the, the acronym that you come up with. You talk about behaviors, but how do you then foster those behaviors? How do you encourage that in your company so you're not like Uber where you have the core values on the wall, but it doesn't translate? Right. Um, it's a it's a long process. Why we only have 100 employees? I mean, if you look at our, I'm not going to talk about revenue, but if you look at revenue per employee, it's very different than a lot of companies. Um, and that's an efficiency metric that 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 we like to look at. So you have to have a good hiring framework. I would I would encourage you to, if you're thinking about starting a company or you know, helping out somebody build a hiring funnel, you know, really think about what are those uh, behaviors that you want, and then how can you screen for them in a asynchronous way and then move to synchronous and what I mean by that is oftentimes people get interviewed face-to-face -face first and you like the person you're like oh they're a likable person but you haven't done enough to really understand who they are you can learn a lot about people from writing so one of the things that we do is if somebody wants to get a job here uh, we do a quick screen you know a quick phone screen of course and then immediately we send them a survey and that survey is in two different parts it's an asynchronous way of evaluation. It's two parts. The first part is culture, and there are 10 questions, and those 10 questions map to the behaviors and core values that we represent. So we'll, one of the questions is, what's the kindest thing you've ever done for somebody? And uh, you'd be amazed at some of the responses we've seen <laughs> or what they think is kind. Uh, it's, it's, it's amusing. Um, and then the second part is competence, right? So you're looking for culture fit always or culture add, right? And then competence, um, they have to be able to do the freaking job, right? Or have the capacity to do the job. And so the next section is either 10, 10 to 20 questions on competence. So we just hired a staff accountant. You know, it's tons of questions on, you know, how do you handle payroll and all these counting questions um, to see how they think. And then the last one, which is, which is verbal because of California uh, rules, is compensation. So if you think about three Cs, you go culture, competence, compensation. So if you like if you, if you check the box on culture, you check the box on, on competence, you need to make sure that you check the, comp, the box on compensation. And every single one of your roles, you should have a compensation band. Because you know, according to California law, you can't just ask somebody like, hey, how much do you make? And then not, and then not tell them like, what the job pays. You have to tell them uh, what the job pays. Um, but it's important to get that right, especially, <laughs> especially in the Bay Area. Because we've had people come through, you know, some of the FANG companies, you know, Facebook, Amazon, FX, Google, that look great on, on culture and competence. And then when it gets to compensation, you're like, oh, yep, okay. Uh, so would you like to take an 80% pay cut um, and not as many benefits? Uh, it can be challenging. So if you get those three things right, then I think your chances of, of success are much greater than what most people get. Yeah, I Something you said there that I picked up on was culture add instead of culture fit. Yeah. And I, I really like the use of that term because culture fit sometimes can lead to more of a monochromatic, homogenous. yeah, homogenous environment. Sure. Um, you know, I was looking at your Twitter feed and recently you retweeted something about there's a, a program that's trying to rehire moms into the workforce. Yeah. And the I'm mom just, project? The mom project. Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. So you can tell us about that, but I also am curious about your thoughts on creating more of a diverse workplace and, and the importance of that. Diversity, super important. 
you know, diversity is 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 not just uh, gender. You know, it's it's race, it's thought, um, you know, it's age, like everything. You want you want diversity across the board because you know, diverse teams perform better. That's fundamentally why you should do it. Um, but the other reason is it's, it's the right thing to do. You know, to give people that didn't have the privilege that we had in this room, um, you know, didn't grow up in the places that we grew up, and maybe somebody funded your college, uh, you know, give them, a, give them a chance, right? If they have the, the work ethic and they match with your, your core values, uh, then uh, you can see some pretty amazing things happen. You have to be conscious about it, though. How so? So back to, like, the hiring process, you know, you, you want to have... It's tricky, but you, you should have goals around diversity, especially with candidates, or you will get culture fit uh, oftentimes. And this is uh, very true, I think, with, with engineers and, and very difficult because the engineering community is primarily male-dominated. And it can be challenging to find uh, female engineers, um, but it will be even more challenging if you don't try. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have to set that bar and that goal, you know, with your team. It's like, hey... We need to have this many candidates from these these areas. You know, the the pool should be diverse. Cool. Otherwise, it it won't be that way. Um, so I do want to open it up to Q and A, but I feel like we can't go through one of these story sessions without hearing about some challenges, some some mistakes that you made. So I'll, I want to frame it this way, and that is uh, <laughs> how much time? <laughs> we do we only have fifteen minutes, so it's going only going to be the the highlights. Um, <laughs> but if you could go back to two thousand three, two thousand two, when you're first starting this company, yeah. And he only had one minute to talk to Andy Wilson in 2003. Yeah. What would you tell him? Fix your hiring process. That's why I talked a lot about it, honestly. Like, the company is, the company you build is, is based on the people that you hire. And I did not always hire well. I made a shit ton of mistakes, you know. Um, did not put core values and, and behaviors ahead of any of this stuff. Just that person's really smart. And they're going to be so important, you know, to the team and building whatever it is we need to build. And uh, never really did a culture check. And uh, every single time, it came back to bite me in the butt. So that's what I would, I would, say, right. I would say. But, you know, good judgment comes from bad. So uh, I don't have any regrets. <laughs> I no kind of don't want just, myself just to know Just lessons that. learned. Yeah, exactly. Cool. cool. Yeah. All right, well, let's, let's open it up to the audience. Does anybody have any questions for Andy? And I'll bring the mic around. Um, my question to you was, um, are there big law firms that you think are actually being innovative and are kind of on the right path? Because, you know, like some of us are going to go work for them. So, yeah, uh, you know, if there's any hope, I'd like to know about it. Uh, there, there is. I mean, they pay well <laughs> for the most part, um, although path to partnership is becoming increasingly difficult. So I hear the uh, there are some some firms that I think are are getting it. It's, it's just such a challenge. I mean, the partnership business model is a pyramid structure and then you know, it's just, it's tough. It's tough. There's a, a, a couple firms though, like Vincent and Elkins out of Texas. It's phenomenal. They have great culture. Um, and they get it. They're adopting cloud technology. Uh, Baker Donaldson is another one. They're um, based out of Tennessee, I believe. Um, I think they're the AM Law 100. Uh, they get it. There's some innovative programs that are, that are occurring too inside, inside uh, some of the large law firms like Oric. You know, they've done some pretty interesting things. Um, but again, like the vast majority of these are still tethered to an old business model where it's associate billable hours and you've got to meet that requirement in order to sustain 
the pyramid. Um, so you might go there. I mean, I, I don't know how long it's going to take before they're disrupted and, you know, there's a new way of doing things like atrium law is just taking over everything. <laughs> you know, law doesn't move that fast. Um, but I think it will happen, you know. And do you want to be, which, which side of history do you want to kind of be on? Um, if you can find a place that is on, on the right side, in my opinion, um, then uh, I think you'll have a more productive career. Another question? Hi. How do you, um, would you go about enticing or motivating uh, a technical expert? If you're not a technical expert yourself, but mm -hmm. you have domain expertise and you understand what the problem is, what the breakdown and the efficiency is, how do you get a technical founder to, to kind of join you in an effort? Hmm. So I know a couple people that have done this. I mean, most of them are, are you know, two technical founders, like Jack and Rion at Clio as an example. One's more finance than tech, but um, you can still do it. I mean, finding a tech uh, founder these days is, is not as difficult as it was maybe when I started because there's so many engineers out there that maybe they, they, they know a ton of engineering, but they lack a domain problem to really go after and tackle. Um, you know, there's various meetups in San Francisco that, that you could go to, uh, you know, go down to um, you know, classes in Palo Alto and sit in on some of these computer science classes or talks um, and just network that way and see if you can find somebody that you wouldn't want to kill with your bare hands in 10 years. Uh, <laughs> that's important because it is, you know, when you bring on a co-founder, uh, you've got to really be aligned on what you want to do. It's a little bit of a, a practical question. So my uh, brother-in-law's in big law, uh, oil and gas. I think the biggest they saw some four terabyte dump. Yeah. One of the things he told me, and this you might have addressed it in the e-discovery vendor versus uh, the, the service or the, the app, but um, he said one of the biggest things that they, the first thing they have to do is remove duplicates. Uh-huh, yeah, deduplication. And, mm -hmm. and, and apparently that's still performed by humans. Oh, uh, I, mean, I hope. Maybe in a big law firm. Yeah. Because so <laughs> it's it, take a long time to do that. Uh, so what's your question? So the, the, that, that is, so the question is, is, is the technology there that that shouldn't be being done by, by humans? Absolutely. It's, in our product, that's the first thing the logical does because... It's an efficiency product, and it's lazy, and it doesn't want to do duplicative work. So, you know, when, when people upload emails, and, and they upload, it would blow your mind, like, what people upload. Like, it's not uncommon to see somebody upload a 200-gigabyte zip file full of 400 gigabytes of email, and then expect that to be deduped, completely indexed, discoverable, organized, rendered to PDF within a matter of hours, so they can start sifting through it all, and that's what our product does. Um, but uh, deduplication is one of those things that's been solved for decades. Uh, we have heard of <laughs> hilarious stories. Uh, I, I met this lawyer in uh, Florida last year, and she told me about this partner at her firm that refused to use technology because she didn't trust it. And she had her paralegal print out all the emails in a room like this and do manual deduplication. Like... It's like that game you play as kids, you know, memory. <laughs> Bet at $250 an hour. So uh, back to that whole perverse incentive point. Yeah, there's, there's technology that can not only do deduplication, but way more than that. Because oftentimes what you see with discovery is that the amount of information produced 
you know, to the requesting party is a fraction of a fraction of what they start with. And that's because of that noise to signal ratio, right? So the amount of information that, that you have to go through is just ridiculously big these days. Um, and what you're actually trying to find is small, you know, a couple documents. A little follow-up to that. Um, he had mentioned that you're seeing, like, so he, he may represent oil and gas, or there's a government, and then maybe there's a, a nonprofit involved. Yeah. But they agree on a data set. Are uh -huh. you seeing that taking place where you're, they know that at least a core part they can agree upon that this is the, the conversations that are discoverable? Okay, so you're talking about parties on opposite right. ends? One, in one case, a common, a common data set. No, very rare. Okay. I mean, litigation, let's be honest, it's not a friendly thing. You know, I'm trying to get those people to work together. It's I, I think it's, it's, it's in response to some of the, the magnitude of the scope. At some point, you can... You it used to be the case, but the laws changed. Uh, the federal you guys know, they, they, they changed recently, 2017, um, where proportionality was uh, really big, uh, really, really important for us too, you know. Um, back in the day, yeah, it could get ridiculous. Like if you had to go through backup tapes, you know, uh, uh, servers of data, laptops, I mean, it could, have, it could cost tens of millions of dollars just to make the data searchable. Um, these days, those types of projects are few and far between. The vast majority of, of matters that involve discovery, um, which we peg are around 20 million created in the United States every single year, and that's including things like lawsuits, internal investigations, public records requests, and those types of things, um, are small in data volume, relatively small, right? But we think it's about 98% or so. So 2% are these mega cases, and those are often associated with very large bet the farm kind of cases, like opiate litigation, where you know a business could literally go out of business if they don't find a way to settle, and so they'll pay whatever. And there's a market for that. That's like the traditional e-discovery services market where you would hire these people and they would charge you millions of dollars, and you'd, you'd probably be okay with that. But that's just that 2%. Yeah, that's right. The, yeah. Yep. Hi, Andy. Thanks for being here. Um, I just wanted to know what you think new lawyers could add to legal tech, considering it sounds like you run a tech company, not a law company. Yeah, that's true. We have a, I have a lot of lawyers that work at Logical, though. Um, so what could new lawyers add to legal tech companies or just like legal tech companies? To your company. Uh, to our company? Um, we love hiring lawyers because we sell to lawyers. So, you know, that communication barrier can be challenging for for. I hate to use the word non-lawyers because that's like the law firm thing, you know. Uh, but for people that, that don't have JDs, um, to have that conversation to have a, and, and to have more empathy too, right? You, you know what lawyers have to go through and uh, somebody who's not in that world, um, it's, it's gonna, it, can, it can be a steep learning curve. You know, we hire both. We hire people from, you know, you name it, tech companies and we hire people uh, that worked in law firms, just hired a, a woman out of New York, um, you know, for six years she was running this e-discovery company or e-discovery division, you know, uh, um, inside this law firm, commuting three hours each way every single day. Uh, and uh, she started about a month ago, and she's in our customer support team. She's very technical, but she's up and running like that. She's also got her JD, so she can have these conversations uh, to talk um, 
you know, more intelligently with our customer base. So I think there's a ton to add. It's a good question. Hi. Oh, hi. What has been the most rewarding part of owning Logical? Um, and since you started, did it change in terms of the idea that you had originally to mm. what the company is now? Okay, so two questions. So the most rewarding part and uh, the change. Um, the, the company definitely changed. I mean, we, we started out as a services company um, you know, where people would ship us hard drives, we'd process it, ship it down. It wasn't a service, you know, anything like that. Um, and then we, we more do uh, software as a service, uh, which is what we are today, you know, logical.com, just like signing up for Dropbox or something like that. Um, the most rewarding part, I think, for me is seeing the impact within the customer base, like, number one. And then, you know, some pretty cool stuff's happened with my employees, of course. It's, you know, internal stuff. But um, externally with customers, seeing the impact that a technolo technology like ours can have in somebody's just daily life is amazing. Like when we first deployed Logical with the city of Baltimore, they were our first government customer. Um, now we have you know, New York City and Chicago, and uh, San Mateo, a bunch of school districts, Palo Alto schools, a bunch, a bunch more, um, was the amount of time that we were saving them for these public records requests. So it would take about three weeks to process one of these requests, and it was incredibly tedious. Back to his point, you know, it was manually deduplicating documents, manually uh, creating PDF files of documents, manually redacting, and then shipping these things off. Well, that, that kind of like, tedious process prevents the government from doing way more impactful things for the city of Baltimore, right? Like getting, more, getting through more marriage licenses or approving a park or whatever. You know, lawyers are involved in so many different things. So post-logical, they went from three weeks to less than three hours. And that is, we see this all the time now because the, the world that we work in is so horribly inefficient. Uh, and this is true of large companies too. We saw this at Walmart. Walmart used to take five days, five business days before their teams could start reading the emails. And no joke, for every single matter. It was nuts. And post uh, deploying logical that went from five days to less than ten minutes. So you multiply that out, like on one matter alone, it's significant. But when you multiply it across all of these matters that people are dealing with, it's enormous. So that's pretty cool. The time savings is is important. You're never going to get back more time. So I love the fact that we're helping people get back more time and money because litigation is ridiculously expensive and shouldn't be. And then the uh, the other thing which what Drew was talking about is sometimes uh, the technology can have a really important part in changing society or like the, literally the earth. Like we've heard of these cool stories with earth justice where they use the technology to save Mexican gray wolves and it's on our blog and there's a bunch of details on it. It's pretty cool. And then um, uh, the Sierra club and New York times, Washington post using the technology to sift through all this data to find all this smoking gun stuff with Scott Pruitt was just so satisfying for me because <laughs> that guy was such a charlatan. Um, it was it was really cool, you know, to to play a small part of that, you know. In the future, maybe Logical just does all those things by itself. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a that's a nice cliffhanger teaser for the future of Logical. Um, everybody, would you give Andy a round of applause? Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Drew. Thanks again to Andy Wilson for joining us for another Lunch and Learn session. Tune in again next week. 
for a panel discussion about California's new Consumer Privacy Act and its implications for all of us. To learn more about LexLab, or to learn how to attend our Lunch and Learn sessions, visit us online at lexlab.uchastings.edu. That's L-E-X-L-A-B dot U-C-Hastings dot E-D-U. This show is recorded live at UC Hastings by Jake Winton and has been edited and produced by Ben Ambrogi. 